Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. Today we feature part two of my interview with Dr. Patrick Bond. Shifting gears just a bit. You know, we've been talking about your insights, your formative years. Move that towards climate change. But there's another dimension, and it, it bridges to climate change, which is it doesn't feel like we have what I'll call a harmonious world system at this point. Whether it's uh, the Belt and Road Initiative or concerns about danger in the Taiwan Straits, the seeming increasing polarization between the United States and China, or at a deeper, I would call more philosophical level, how the cherishing of individual freedom that underpins American ideology is not necessarily shared in the countries that are born into my thousands of years of Eastern philosophy. And as I look now, I think there are dangers related to climate collaboration and potential uh, war and possibly nuclear weapons being used. But I see you've done a lot of work on what you call deglobalization. We've talked about that a bit here and about the nature of the BRICS. INET in uh, December of 2018, along with Justin Lin at Beijing University, did a, a conference on China and the development of Africa. Many of the times when I visited Africa, I hear people saying, being simplistic, you're building forts and they're building ports and highways and schools and hospitals. And, but I see tension, particularly related to the kind of frighteningly authoritarian dimensions of China. I see this world system as in turmoil itself. How do you, and, and I've had the good fortune of watching a video that you had on Vimeo recently, which was a presentation related to the BRICS, and particularly a zoom lens that in the last third of it about the relationship between China and India. So I'm painting a big picture here, but how do you see the evolution of the world system? How do you see the potential for which I call reharmonization or collaboration. What are the necessary ingredients in your mind and where are the dangers? Well, it's just great to be able to think at the biggest possible scale. And I've been inspired by the late Emmanuel Wallerstein to think, are the semi-peripheral countries going to be assimilated upwards or will they sink back into degradation as some would predict for South Africa? And I think in our case here, the hope that South Africa could play a humane role, certainly Nelson Mandela articulated this, Thabo Mbeki in his own way did, a humane role in changing global geopolitics, that hope faded quickly. And much of that was because 
a durable problem, which I think is really coming from the factories of East Asia, called overproduction. So it means vast overcapacity, which in turn, very logically, all of our colleagues in the Chinese Academy of Marxism and other you know, reputable sites for looking at overproduction, are pretty clear that this overcapacity now is creating this belt and road, this drive outwards. That's not that different if we go back to, say, Rosa Luxemburg's argument in 1913 about the drive of imperial forces, colonial forces, to take over productive capital, export uh, capital, and push it into colonies to find some rates of return. If that's the core problem, right, an overaccumulation, overproduction that has to be displaced, then the geopolitical tensions are logically following. I, I just wish it weren't the case that uh, China and, and, and the U.S., particularly, I think, driven by Washington, uh, like you know, the potential for, for Washington-Moscow again in, in conflict, that these are, I think, driven by the most you know, notoriously militant um, and aggressive force in world history, the Pentagon, the CIA, the State Department. I'd rather, yeah, in defensive values of freedom and uh, genuine liberty, that these pressures come from below. You see it all over, you know, in China, you see it from people wanting their sovereignty or their rights of some degree of self-determination in Mongolia and uh, Upper Mongolia and Tibet and in, uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, the, the Uyghur people, Hong Kong Democrats, workers, Marxist students even. So their fighting back against that repression is often inspiring. Sometimes they, they win. I mean, if you can find your way to a VPN to get around the Great Wall of China, full respect. Um, what I'd see then is then as China moves out, especially it moves into Kashmir, right, in the India-Pakistan border where they're trying to go to a new port, Ghadar. That's actually an old port and trying to revitalize it, or they may use, you know, Karachi. They, they definitely want a route from the uh, Arabian Sea directly to West China, which means they wouldn't be so vulnerable on those, you know, long straits and complicated uh, um, aspects of the, of the South China Sea and um, of, of uh, South Asia, where, where I think U.S. militarism is, is a threat to them. And likewise, their attempt to build all these sort of islands in other people's Filipino and Vietnamese waters represents, again, some of that awful defensiveness that you, that you see from China. Um, so maybe if they do cut this pipeline, road, and rail, through Kashmir, very dangerous area, very contested by Kashmiris who want self-determination. Maybe that would go some way to limiting these tensions. As you've seen them, China and India on that border have led to dozens of deaths just last year and fisticuffs where soldiers were throwing each other over the Himalayan mountain ranges into freezing water. Um, they're not allowed to use guns in that area. And those, those kinds of tragic, let me call them the breaking of the bricks, or Construction workers know there's a term spalling, in which bricks that seem like a nice solid wall are actually you know, crumbling or falling apart. There are other ways that the bricks, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, with so much hope economically, Jim O'Neill from Goldman Sachs writing in 2001 about these being the building bricks of the 21st century, they peaked when they offered some new initiatives, a BRICS new development bank, a contingent reserve arrangement, alternative to the International Monetary Fund. There were lots of prospects for setting up a BRICS vaccine center here in Johannesburg that could have, when announced in 2018, possibly suggested a, a way to deal with the kind of COVID you know, vaccine apartheid of the West. Never happened. Contingent reserve arrangement, never happened. The BRICS got more power in the IMF by 
buying voting rights. Uh, the 2015 recapitalization of the IMF saw China going up 37%, and Brazil 23%, India 11 even Russia 8%. But what did they do with that? I mean, you know, you kind of get potential new heads of the IMF, but the BRICs are never there. It's always some European, I think they took the European only signs from the apartheid era, right, Rob? And they just put them on the managing director uh, door of the of the IMF. And the and to have a, a David Malpass or even a Jim Yong Kim, you know, coming out of nowhere really to, to run the World Bank just because they have an American citizenship just makes no sense. And when the big BRICs try some of that, they're quickly co-opted. Also, I've never seen the BRICs really raise any objection to IMF structural adjustment. These two moments of Keynesianism under Georgieva recently or under Dominic Strauss-Kahn in 2009, the expansion of special drawing rights in both cases, the potential to relax on that fiscal conservatism to get us all over this, that seems to be just whimsical, short term. And certainly we're under a rigid austerity, the worst I've ever seen here. And the IMF has a $4.3 billion loan to enforce that they made last year. It was a loan full of corruption as well as you'd, as you'd expect. These are the kinds of things that make me think these BRICs are not really changing. They're not really offering an alternative. I've studied each of the BRICs new development bank loans here in detail. They're just as bad as anything from you know, 18th and 8th Street in Washington. And instead, I think these can be described as amplifiers. We, we rely on a Brazilian dependency theorist, a great theorist from the left of the tradition, not like Cardoso from the right, but his name was Roy Mauro Marini. And his term for this, this, let's say, deputy sheriff or local ally of imperialism, his term sub-imperialism, right, a layer, Wallerstein called it the semi-periphery. But you have to actually look at geopolitically, which way are they lining up? Sometimes they talk left and they certainly have anti-imperial rhetoric, but it's actually when they're fitting in, in rather destructive ways to the rest of world economy or the UNFCCC, you know, the climate talks where Barack Obama in 2009 very successfully co-opted uh, Wen Jibao from China and Manmohan Singh from India and uh, Jacob Zuma from South Africa and even Lula da Silva from Brazil to basically destroy the idea of binding commitments in the, in the Conference of the Parties in Copenhagen. These make me reflect upon not a potential alternative through the existing power structure, but rather one that assimilates and amplifies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm always drawn to the uh, book that Oval Shell and John DeBerry wrote called Wealth and Power, mm -hmm. because what they essentially said was there's thousands of years of Chinese history, and then there's the Opium War and the Japanese invasion and a woundedness. And then there's the United States, which received the baton from Great Britain as the world leader. And these two tectonic plates are going to clash with different philosophical systems, the desire to maintain control, and the woundedness of those historic episodes in China. And as I'm watching that process unfold, some Chinese scholars who I greatly admire at Tsinghua University, Academy of Social Science places will say to me, Rob, why does your country preach that we should become like you? Have you ever looked at the public opinion polls, not just in the United States, but in Germany and Sweden and England, 
and look at how few people are happy with what you're doing. Why would we want to emulate that? And so I, I sense there's a, a yearning within China to regain its sense of national dignity, to be, which you might call, accepted as a leading partner. And I think the Americans make that into uh, a wound of America being displaced. They, at one very simple level, they're worried about scale. A place that's four times as large as ours, once they do economic development, can do a whole lot more to influence the world and national defense and everything with a lower tax rate than we would have because they have four times the population. So you, you see all of the suspicion. And I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say is what's fomenting the discord is in part because the BRICS have assimilated in part because the West isn't thriving. Nobody knows where to turn. Yes, I, I think we're in that period. It could be, you know, prior to a really serious Great Depression, if you know, if the Chinese real estate market takes down parts of the financial system and there's interlocks and overexposure from Western investors. Yes, it could be just like again a twenty-nine to thirty-three precursor to a long, terrible depression. We've learned lessons, of course, quantitative easing to print money, but how long can that be done? I think those are the right big questions, but to get to the specific one, how does it feel in a place like Johannesburg, where Chinese investors are, you know, they're all over. Our biggest rail investment was massive locomotive purchases for exporting of coal, now going to China more and more, but massive corruption. Those really were write-offs. Or a huge special economic zone in the north of the country, also full of corruption. Or Chinese loans to our big coal-fired power plants rife with corruption. In fact, I credit the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in the U.S. for identifying Hitachi bribing our ruling party, the ANC, and actually paying a fine for that. So let's say that if you're in a place like South Africa, and it's much worse if you're in eastern Zimbabwe with the biggest diamond find, well, as even Robert Mugabe said on his birthday a couple of years before he died, we had $15 billion of diamonds, and because we have these deals with the Chinese, we can only find $2 billion worth. The rest has vanished. Um, or new coal-fired power plants in, in Zimbabwe from China. The Kenyans have just resisted one. What I see, though, if there's a pattern, Rob, it's not really that different. It's not about building schools and maybe a stadium here or there for symbolic purposes, but it's following the tracks of what Western companies have done. Really, in this country since 1652, they settled, but they used the resources here, and they built ports, yes, they built railroads, yes, but they were often to go inland to the mines and the plantations, right? Those roads and railroads took the resources of the continent out under the Western first you know, imperial and colonial system, and then the Bretton Woods system and all of the global trading systems, which have so severely disadvantaged Africa with our, let me call it again, unequal ecological exchange. Far more in wealth is being extracted with the compensation or the investment in infrastructure, the hard currency revenues, some royalties and taxes, some jobs, very much um, below the outflow of the natural wealth, right? A, a real net negative. It's the only region of the world, if you look at the World Bank's natural capital accounts, that show Africa being systematically looted. So China does a lot of that because it's producing things for Western consumption. And to me, then, it doesn't really look that much different, except for a little bit of rhetoric about we're not going to be as 
interventionist in your politics. Sometimes they are. I mean, just as a trivial example, you wouldn't let the Dalai Lama come to South Africa. Three times his visa was denied because of Beijing pressure, even to visit Archbishop Desmond Tutu on his 80th birthday 11 years ago. That's the kind of, let's say, control freakery that maybe in that psychological sense you have a point. But really, I think the big story is still the search for profit. Rosa Luxemburg in her book, Accumulation of Capital, she put it so well that capital runs into crises, then it needs to spatially expand, a spatial fix, a globalization process. Um, that's different than the way Lenin, Bukharin, Hilferding, and others described inter-imperial rivalry. For Luxembourg, it was capital reaching deeper into the non-capitalist, reaching into matriarchal systems, reaching into ethnic uh, communities, reaching into nature, reaching into whatever uh, forms of states were beginning to come up, and, and just taking a primitive accumulation, a, an accumulation by dispossession. I think that's still what Western companies do, and now what Chinese companies have done, and it's hard to tell the difference sometimes, except you know the language and the, the culture. Yeah. Do you uh, coming back to Africa for a moment? Uh, somebody put a puzzle before me recently. They said the capital markets allow Norway at one percent above inflation to borrow money to put in place solar panels. In Africa, they charge them 9% to put in the solar panels, to borrow to put in the solar panels. But Norway's dark three months of the year, and the place to put solar panels to get the most bang for the buck or remimbi or whatever uh, should be in the equatorial regions. And then it was presented to me that this isn't just about development of Africa, this is about climate and survival for all of us. How do we create a collective institution which, which you might call takes the risk premium out or shares the burden of the risk premium with the African countries when we will benefit from the transition they make? How do, how do we inspire that collective energy? And you've alluded to the presence of corruptions and other things. How do we overcome some of what colonialism has developed within the African continent and emerging countries all over the world? Well, I've been looking for ways that you could do a climate reparations payment. So your, your version of climate finance, you've nailed it because you've said the logic of lending to an African sovereign, 9% is reasonable. That's what South Africa pays, but you pay much higher further up the continent. And then the next question is, well, obviously that makes doing the solar, doing the wind extremely expensive. You're paying such a high rate um, and the premium, it's risk. There's a currency depreciation, so if we're looking at the actual real effective interest rate in, in our local currency terms, it's, it's, it's impossible to, to finance. So we just have very little of it, don't we? So the market isn't working to achieve public and merit good objectives to end, for example, the terrible uh, searches like in Mozambique, as I mentioned, the fourth largest gas field, the coal fields in this country, which continue and continue. Um, there's 
natural gas and fracking going on in Namibia and Botswana in one of the, the most beautiful and pristine areas of Africa. Um, we you know, go on and on about offshore drilling uh, for oil and for gas all over. And in, in Uganda, very sensitive places and people are being disrupted. So could we substitute, could we pay countries? Now there's an Ecuadorian example that inspires me. You might've heard of Yasuni. It's on the Eastern side, it's a national park bordering Peru. And what their then president, Rafael Correa, authorized some of his economists, Carlos Lorea maybe most prominently to do was to negotiate with Europe, especially Norway and Germany and Italy, to get a down payment on the climate debt so that if there was a $3.6 billion grant, not a loan, but a grant to Ecuador, they would then forego the oil revenues and they'd leave the oil under the soil. They'd leave this Yasuni Park, which happens to be the, the single most biodiverse hotspot in the world, untapped. And because a German liberal wanted to instead play with the carbon markets, right, his name isn't important, but he was the German Federal Minister of Development Aid. His name was Dirk Niebel, and he just wanted to play the carbon markets, and he insisted that the money would go through there and it would have a return, it would be an offset for German companies. And that's the logic that'll get, you know, uh, this kind of profiteering mentality of the West to the point where we just give up. Uh, because if we can keep oil under the soil, gas under the fields of uh, Ravuma in Mozambique, because the North pays a down payment, or instead of me paying my tax money to send South African National Defense Force boys and bullets and bombs and body bags, which is what's happening now. We're spending about $70 million in sending 1,500 troops to defend ExxonMobil and Total and China National Petroleum. If we can arrange that the more rational approach is not to, it's to pay Mozambique not to extract. Now, you've asked about you know very difficult places like Saudi Arabia and Russia, who have huge climate debts to the rest of us, as South Africa does. Um, but it does seem to me for a Mozambique or a Uganda or a Kenya, which is also doing oil exploration, all over the continent, oil and gas is being drilled. We really should pay governments. Now, you're right, corruption means if you can't pay a government in good faith, Mozambique's classic, can we find a way to pay people? What kind of a basic income grant might go to the ordinary people in a place, Cabo Delgado, the, the province where all this gas is, so that the Islamic threat there would be reduced because a, an income stream would come in. Could one do that without the state? What kind of pilots have we seen? The one that's exciting, Rob, is in Namibia, a place called Ochevero, and Germans, Lutherans, knowing that a hundred years before, their, uh, descent, their uh, ancestors had uh, committed genocide on the Herero and the Nam people. They've just recognized that this year in the government. But they began to make these 10 euro a month gifts to every person in this village. And they really got, like many basic income grant pilot projects, show terrific results on socioeconomic, on cultural, on you know, unemployment, on crime. All of these major indicators prove very, very positive. And I think that might be a future for taking a climate finance payment in areas especially suffering from the droughts, the floods, the new malaria threats, um, the extreme storms, the devastation of locusts, all of these things that have been attacking Africa as climate effects. Well, we in the global north here, me in Johannesburg too, we really do owe a climate debt that could be turned into something, you know, where the multiplier effect of a dollar being spent in a local area. And the last point on this, because you've raised the question very appropriately, should foreign investors, should foreign lenders try to take those high rates of return when as your currency crashes, you know they become 
utterly unpayable. Well, instead, what about producing our solar panels and our wind turbines uh, internally? What can we do to up the manufacturing base? We can quite easily do it in this country, but right now we're being undercut, of course, if anybody tries to do solar panels, they import it from China much cheaper. And I think that would be one of the other dilemmas. How can we start um, something that's not necessarily economic, it might have to be state-run, uh, a massive ESCOM, this is our major peristatal, switching from coal and switching into the grid um, and microgrids and all the, uh, particularly the um, electricity storage, pumped storage, where you pump water up the hill at, uh, during the daytime and let it come down at night so when it's a cloudy day or uh, when the wind isn't blowing then you've got you've got storage or molten salt where you have concentrated solar so we aren't so reliant on lithium I mean the rare earth minerals that are being dug up for the green economy are quite frightening because of all the damage being done uh, and the social resistance so I think those would be some of the ways we'd want to frame uh, the challenges in the coming decade of getting Africa off that western track of high carbon industrialization, of digging for oil and gas and even coal still, and instead demanding the climate debt be paid, the reparations, but, but properly, not in the form that would you know, boost some dictatorship. Does that make sense to you? Hmm. Now, I remember uh, in preparing for this, you shared with me a very powerful document uh, from the South African uh, is it Federation of Trade Unions? Yes, that's right. And they talked about something called Nationally Determined Contributions, NDC, that came from the United Nations Framework Convention. And the, is this national contributions related to what I'll call cumulative carbon burning? In other words, the debt we owe as reparations for how much we've toxify the atmosphere or is what tell me a little bit in my audience a little bit more about what the NDC is and why uh, they were very critical well I wish your it. premise was correct that our nationally determined contributions would have a memory as well as projections and ambitions um, because you're right if we could say that South Africa industrialized and frankly it wasn't everybody who industrialized in fact Electricity only came here into the Johannesburg townships like Soweto around 1980 because when the World Bank made their loans and the white Afrikaners set up ESCOM, they just didn't want to provide electricity to black people who weren't paid enough to be able to afford it. And finally, General Electric and you know reform tendencies and so, okay, we're going to sell you some, some appliances. So you now need electricity in the 1980s. So that industrialization we had, a minerals energy complex, as we call it, that was very racist, right? It was a very white bias. So people like me had you know, enormous benefits under the system. So we would want to make sure that our nationally determined contributions are sensitive to the internal uh, disparities that have been so extreme and still are. But let's say that the NDCs, nationally determined contributions, are what the Paris Climate Agreement insists that countries file, but it's voluntary. And there's no real policing. There's an attempt to raise the ambition. So it's an aspirational target. And in our case, the aspirational target was set this year at 440 million tons by 2030. And then there was a little revision down to 420, 5% cut, pathetic, really tokenistic. 
So are activists, and you've mentioned one of the most powerful networks, potentially, which is the second largest federation. It's not the AFL-CIO, it would be sort of a change to win. It would be a second uh, movement, at, uh, around 700,000 members. The biggest uh, union is the metal workers, a UAW type, uh, with about 350,000. Very powerful union in some ways in the private sector. The, the other bigger federation, the traditional one, the Congress of South African Trade Unions, is more aligned with the African National Congress and has more public sector workers. So this one broke away because the metal workers had a very tough clash over whether to support this African National Congress after all the betrayals and failures. And as a result, with quite visionary people in that metal workers union demanding just transitions and sort of eco-socialist, and then in the South African Federation, the bigger network, uh, that's the second biggest federation, the very charismatic leader, Zuelanzi Mavavi, they are moving, in fact, they had a big conference last week, towards just transition demands. Sometimes we call these million climate jobs. That's one of the campaigns at one of the allied institutes, the Alternative Information and Development Center. Sometimes it's a climate justice charter presented to parliament demanding an emergency be declared. Sometimes it's in a climate justice coalition where this group SAFTU meets 350.org and does regular protests at the end of September, protests all over the country against the energy minister. So we're seeing quite a good variety, but that labor is still very involved in saying, if we cut emissions from coal-fired power plants, we close down coal mines, we rethink these carbon-intensive smelters that chew up most of the electricity, about 35 companies to 40% of the electricity in this, in this country. If we can do that, it may require taking this big parastatal and turning it, you know, like a ship, a huge rapid U-turn and move to renewables, but doing so without losing jobs, without losing community wealth in some of the areas where they've become dependent. I think, Rob, that's one of the beauties of living in a country with these extreme contradictions on class and race and gender and ecology is that quite visionary people are coming out and you find them in major trade unions. So I think SAFTU, along with the network called Trade Unions for Energy Democracy, headquartered uh, at CUNY in New York, they're really beginning to make their arguments, even if we don't have much effect on NDCs, this kind of eco-socialist, you know, kind of green and feminist uh, politics is, is moving. I hope it moves ever faster here. Yeah. Well, in our uh, conversation over these last 75 minutes, I think you've illustrated for a young scholar the kind of curiosity seeking out social challenges, exploring and building and integrating lots of what you might call different historic episodes and great works in the history of social thought. As we come down the stretch here, I want to talk specifically about education. I want to make you a, a meta-mentor electronically to our whole audience. What would you encourage a 20-year-old individual to do now, to study, to build themselves to be of value to society over the next 50 years. Well, Rob, you know, you're more of a model than me in really getting in and making an impact and using ideas at the commanding heights of power. So I have full respect for what you've done in your career. But for me, it's been 
an alliance I've always sought with activists who I believe are producing knowledge. And I think for, especially if you're a young economics student and you're fed the, let's, let's be quite frank, uh, Rob, after the 2008 crash, which only about three or four, Nora Rubini or Dean Baker, or maybe Jamie Galbraith, you know, really saw coming. And the economics profession just hasn't changed yet. I think we have to acknowledge. It may be you, like me, after graduating from a very good economics department at Swarthmore, have to become recovering economists pretty quick. For me, it was partly understanding that the financial markets, which when I went to the Wharton School, were celebrated as the most omniscient, fast clearing, and capable of moving big amounts of money. And whether it was redlining in Philadelphia or a third world debt crisis, I could see this wasn't a very effective way to allocate resources. I turned myself to a version of Marxian political economy where I was lucky to have probably the finest teacher, David Harvey. But you know, when I think about that, so much of the engagement that I was lucky to be involved in, anti-apartheid work, third world debt advocacy, community movements, labor, corporate campaigning with some of the greats of the 1980s, or hanging around with Bill Greider, learning about the Fed in a financial democracy campaign. Those were formative experiences that then gave me more respect, I think, and it's continued in a place like this, for activists creating friction. And just as an epistemological argument, I think, Rob, I'd conclude by saying, you know, when you, when you see these conflicts in society, if you're a middle-class intellectual, as I was and I am, usually, you know, you want to run the other way. You're scared. You don't want to see the, the conflict. We're conflict avoiders in some of these ways. But, you know, when you hear this, this terrible conflict, what you don't see, what I don't see mostly from our academic armchairs is that there are little rays of light that let the activists who are right at the, the site where they're either being, you know, one day they're being crushed by a repressive regime, maybe they're being co-opted the next day, maybe they're getting concessions the next day. And I think the production of knowledge, I've tried to encourage activists who are PhD students to think of this praxis epistemology. It's production of knowledge in conflict where that heat generates light as well. I think it's that respect that I've learned, partly from making mistakes like predicting we'd never get free AIDS medicines because big pharma corps were too powerful and having to eat my words literally weeks later when the policies changed when TRIPS had this new exemption and the balance of forces locally changed. Things changed rapidly, all of a sudden. And I think a good young scholar with a flexible mind will recognize that and maybe get out of the, you know, ISLM and supply demand and all of those sort of more rigid ways of thinking about markets, prices, and find more inspiration in struggles for social justice and environmental justice. Well, in my own uh, way of seeing, there's a, a, a gentleman I recently read about named Jeremy Barmy. He's a China scholar based in Australia. And he created a website with some others on Chinese heritage and U.S.-China relations. And he created something which he called Specters and Souls, which was, I think, like an annual report for 2020, 2021. And in it, he described something that he called the Invisible Republic of the Spirit. And he cited various people, uh, 
Lu Jun from uh, China, and people who understood that they can't be intimidated and have a deep appreciation of life or satisfaction in their own life. And uh, he talked about, you know, Leonard Cohen and he talked about various poets. He talked about the Reverend William Barber in the United States and so forth. And as I was listening to you today, I felt like I wanted to nominate you for a chapter in that invisible republic of the spirit. Because there's a, there is a courageousness that you bring to your curiosity. And there is an example that you're setting that is quite unusual. And so as is my penchant, because I grew up in a family of people that lived and worked in music, I, ask, I always ask myself to let some part of that invisible republic tell me, what am I thinking about this experience? And the song that came to my head is by a, a writer named Tom Petty. Mm -hmm. And when I think of you, the heartbreakers, the song is I Won't Back Down. Mm -hmm. The lyrics, I'll, I'll paraphrase here. Well, I won't back down. No, I won't back down. You can stand me up to the gates of hell but I won't back down. No, I'll stand my ground, won't be turned around, and I'll keep this world from dragging me down. I'm gonna stand my ground, and I won't back down. Hey, baby, there ain't no easy way out. I won't back down, because I, I know what's right. I just got one life in a world that keeps trying to push me around, but I'll stand my ground. Patrick, you uh, are an extraordinary scholar both in the depth and the range and the independence and the courage that you bring to bear. And it's been my pleasure to learn from you in preparation and learn more from you in our meeting today. And I hope uh, in a few months' time we can do some other things together or at the very least come back and make another episode because I think the way you're um, illuminating the world at its core is encouraging. Some people avoid dilemmas, crises, dreadful. They look the other way. But everybody can feel it around them now, particularly since the pandemic started. They can feel it in the distribution of income and wealth. They can feel it in the gender and race discrimination. They can feel it in the fear of climate change. But if we're going to get out of this in these many dimensions, it's going to be people who I would say should model themselves in spirit like you. Well, so. you're very kind, and I do appreciate so much this time with you. But I do want to correct you that I'm simply surfing the privilege that I've had, race, nation, class, good education. And it's really the people who need that Tom Petty tribute, who are the grassroots and shop floor and environmental yeah. and youth and feminist and uh, gay lesbian activists here. They're very strong yeah. and they're very repressed. So like yes. across this continent, I, those I struggling... agree with you, but you took your gifts and your good fortune and your willpower and you're given to them and they will in turn be more confident, 
more inspired, more unrelenting when they're assisted by people like you that share your gifts. So oh, I think it's a two-way street between yeah, you and them. Yeah, they certainly give me much more than the other way around. I can, I can promise you that. Yeah. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much, Rob. You too. And uh, thank you. I'm, I hope we can meet again. And I, I certainly want to introduce you as both analyst and example to my young scholars in the days ahead. Thanks. Well, I'm Thanks. very flattered. Thanks again. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing